Hello, this is Rob Massey, and welcome back to the Planet Jesus podcast. This is episode five, The Story of Us. In this episode, we will see how individual and collective faithfulness to God, despite hardship, can lead to solving some of the world's biggest problems. In full knowledge of our limitations, the stories of our ancestors anticipated a day of deliverance when God would intervene and help close the gap and fulfill their hopes. I hope you enjoyed this broadcast. The story of humanity is a story of struggle, vulnerability, and pain, sprinkled with enough good experiences and rays of hope that it has survived and progressed. This summer, at the suggestion of Bill Gates, it was a summer reading list that he put out on LinkedIn, I read the book Factfulness, 10 Reasons Why We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think, a book by the late Hans Rosling. The book seeks to separate fact from fiction by using statistics to show that the world is, indeed, a better place. Rosling begins by demonstrating in a series of 13 questions that the world is now a safer, more secure, less violent place than it was 20 years ago with greater equality. In this global survey, most people scored worse than random. He gives the example of what that means. Had a troop of chimpanzees been asked the same questions, by the way, each question had three possible responses, the chimpanzees would have scored a 33%, getting four of the first 12 questions correct. The problem Rosling discovered is that people surveyed were only getting two of the first 12 correct, worse than random. His conclusion was that there existed a systematic problem as the result of, quote, wrong knowledge. By the way, the 13th question on global warming was answered correctly 86% of the time. The one negative trend in the survey was also the one best known. His conclusion was that the wrong knowledge was actually past knowledge. Conditions like high infant mortality, inequality between the sexes and races, deaths through war and disasters were higher in the past and over time had dropped or improved. His claim was not that there were no more problems to solve or that all these issues had been addressed, but that things were better and we should continue to focus on and have concern over these problems, but at the same time, we can recognize that we have been solving some big problems. That said, you can read his book for yourself. I want to perform, though, a thought experiment. Let's go back 100 years in the U.S. You can Google the stats for your country, but in the U.S., the life expectancy for men in 1918 was 36.6 years. And for women, it was 42.2 years. Today, we are nearing 80 years as a life expectancy. That is a dramatic improvement. In 1918, the world was at war, the bloodiest four-year conflict in the history of humanity. It was the year of the flu pandemic, which infected, according to the CDC, about 500 million people, or one-third of the world's population and killed an estimated 50 million people worldwide. Those types of severe experiences make an indelible mark on the collective consciousness 
So you can see why we get the wrong answers to many of Rosling's questions. It's our natural response to legendary catastrophe. Let's continue the thought experiment. Let's go back 2,000 years to the time of Christ or back to the time of Moses 3,500 years ago or before written history when humanity was looking for ways to rationalize, measure, and document, not unlike Rosling, their conditions, their infant death, their plagues, beasts, tribal wars. Let's consider the stories that they told, their factful depiction of reality. I look at the biblical stories as original or fundamental stories of why things are the way they are and the hope of how things could improve. Genesis, the first book of the Hebrew scriptures, in the second chapter, imagines a garden world where water flows plentifully and the trees and the plants provide plenty of food for man, woman, and beast. I can almost hear the soft breeze blowing, the trees rustling, the lowing of cattle, the bleeding of sheep, while the man and the woman rest from a day of tending and keeping the garden. Isn't that a pleasant scene? Better than muddy winters in Tennessee. Do we think that the author who spoke that story or wrote those words was actually living in that kind of world? Or was she moving from cave to cave, Oasis to oasis, following the hunters for food, looking for a little shelter and some warm clothing and trying to keep her hungry baby alive. This story of the Garden of Eden is one of longing and hope, a place between now and the future where humanity could find rest. We see the realities that plagued our ancestors. By the way, we are the descendants of survivors. Our foreparents survived plagues, beasts, tribal wars, and were attractive enough to secure a mate. So, congratulations. We, however, uh, get frustrated when we cannot find a stable Wi-Fi connection or don't get accepted into the right college or when unemployment reaches 6%. I'm not saying we're made of less stuff than what our foreparents were. But we do allow things that are trivial to bother our minds. The realities that plagued our foreparents were significant. We talk about first world problems. First world problems cannot consistently produce the deeply true stories that ancient third world problems did. That's why our generation has to depend on facts. Facts are good, but they are not the best material for conveying truth. In Genesis, the third chapter, the story of disorder, fear, and loss is conveyed. The catalyst for the loss of the garden experience was blamed on the serpent, a beast of subtlety that introduced disorder. In this passage, we see words like enmity, bruise, crush, pain, rule, sweat, and dust. The serpent eats dust and the man returns to the dust. The woman delivers children through pain and the husband rules over her. Remember, This story is depicting our ancestors' reality, not the imagined hopeful ideal that was conveyed in the garden story. We cannot conclude that mate domination is the ideal. It is the nasty way things were. It's better now, but as Rosling claims, there is still significant room for improvement in most parts of the world and in many subcultures. I want to call out the first sign of hope in Genesis 3.15. It's called by some theologians 
the first good news. It is written to the serpent, uh, as if he could read. Then again, maybe he can. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He or they shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The woman was going to have a child or children. Bible scholars are divided on which pronoun to use, he or they. It could go either way, or either way. Those who like the idea that this anticipates Jesus lean toward he, and those who do not think it should be they. I think it's both. The actions of the king should be the actions of the people. It is pretty clear from passages like 1 Corinthians 15, 25, that Paul believed that Christ would reign until he put all enemies under his feet. So there's that kind of crushing the serpent under his feet. And Romans 16, 19 through 20, Paul says that for your obedience, he's talking to the people in Rome, is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Look at that good and evil there. That goes back to the tree in the Garden of Eden, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So he's making a play on words here. He's using these words very strategically, very specifically. Then 20th verse, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So do you see how uh, both Christ is to rule until all enemies are under his feet, but the church itself, the people of his, itself, as they are wise concerning that which is good and innocent to that which is evil, that somehow those actions are a crushing of Satan under their feet? It seems like the enemies of humanity, physical enemies like hunger, infant mortality, tribal war, and unexplained global chaos, like the natural disasters we've read about recently, and the spiritual enemies like unforgiveness, fear, loneliness, and self-loathing are to be crushed by the actions of both Jesus and his people. Let's focus on how Israel thought everything would be set right. That is, how the garden would be restored and what headwinds humanity could expect to encounter based on their early experiences. We get hints throughout Genesis and into Exodus. Those are the first two books of the Hebrew Scriptures. In Genesis 1.28, God's first command to his creation is this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. He's talking about being fruitful and multiplying. According to what we reflect on earlier from Genesis 3, the woman was going to have a little trouble fulfilling that command. Her children would be in conflict with the serpent, which would certainly put their lives at risk, and she would experience pain carrying and delivering them. As the writers of Genesis continue the story of us, they introduce the hopeful story of Abraham, a man of faith who feels inspired to travel in the direction of Eden, away from his hometown. Yet his wife is barren, and they are both old. Yet God claims that he is going to have offspring of his own, and goes as far to claim in Genesis 15, 5, that his offspring would number like the stars. 
That's impressive for an old guy. This same promise is repeated to Abraham again. And then Abraham's son Isaac in chapter 26, verse 24. And to his grandson Jacob in chapter 28, verse 14. But by the end of Genesis, we have about 70 descendants in total. Not exactly stellar by any means. Consider the headwinds that this family faced. A family with its problems and challenges. Challenges not unfamiliar to us and eerily representative of all our common condition. We're not surprised by the similarities, remembering that for our ancestors, facts were gathered through stories. Those stories that proved true, that is, you could live by them, they were retained and passed down and other narratives were discarded. Isn't that true today? By the way, that is why Christianity is being discarded in the West. Our retelling of the story is no longer true. By the time Abraham's family has resided in Egypt a few hundred years, they have really multiplied. Notice Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Notice that the king of Egypt has the shrewdness of the serpent. Verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. When the oppression did not slow down the birth of the Hebrew children, the king of Egypt instituted infanticide on the boys that were born. Nothing changes. Kings kill when they fear. Consider the recent murder of the journalist Khashoggi by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. But what did our ancestors do? By the way, I am not Jewish, but I look at these stories as the true story of humanity and its struggle. What tribe or nation has not suffered slavery, deprivation, and death? Our ancestors, they maintained hope in that darkness. Notice Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It was during this time that a man of the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, in marriage, and they conceived and bore a son. Their hope kept that child hidden. When they could hide him no longer, they released him into the river Nile, and he was discovered by an Egyptian princess who named him Moses. Whatever we're facing as individuals, nations, or globally, whatever enemies threaten to thwart us from journeying through the challenges to our unlikely garden destination, let us remember that when infanticide was the rule, our parents chose to hope in the future. Despite pain, despite rulers, despite suffering, they married, had children, and hoped for a better day. An example of that hope that Moses' parents had is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. It is the story of a privileged couple. Although they were not slaves like Moses' parents, they lived under foreign occupation. Let's read how Luke introduces them in Luke chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. 
In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Like Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth were old and barren. When we go back and read Genesis 17 verses 1 and 2, we read that Abraham was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to him. He said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Like Moses' parents, they were both the descendants of Levi. When both parents were from the same priestly line, there was a sense that the purity and dignity of the priestly line was being preserved. Zechariah could have married anyone, but he chose Elizabeth, the daughter of Aaron. Now, remember that Aaron was the brother of Moses. So what was written of Moses' parents was also true of Aaron. This was an elite family in Israel. Yet despite their privilege, there was a sense of shame, loss, and reproach because they were old and didn't have any children. We've talked about the enemy infanticide and high infant mortality, but add to that barrenness. Barrenness was particularly cruel to the ancients. See, it was not understood that there could be problems with one or both of the reproductive systems of the parents, or that diet or disease could be causing a problem. But a closed womb was a deep personal tragedy in the Old Testament. A barren wife in a polygamous marriage was subject to ridicule, like in Genesis 16, or extreme jealousy, like in Genesis 30. The social pressures to bear children for her husband were so great on the ancient women that a barren wife would sometimes offer her husband a surrogate mother, as seen in both those last two chapters I mentioned in Genesis 16 and Genesis 30. Barrenness was considered a curse, see Hosea 9 or a divine punishment in Genesis 20. The Hebrew scriptures even declared that God promised Israel no infertility if they obeyed his laws. Yet Luke declares that these blameless old people had obeyed God's laws, yet they were not contributing to the Genesis 3 solution of birthing children to crush the head of the serpent. No little freedom fighters to throw off the yoke of Roman domination, I mean peace. By the way, it always looks like peace from the conqueror's perspective. This situation seemed hopeless. No children, barrenness, reproach. Of course, we know today she had no reason to feel that way, but the culture then demanded it. What did humanity need? Millennia had passed, and the struggle continued. The fear, uncertainty, and doubt continued. Kings and commoners, priests and slaves, all continued to wring their hands at the helpless plight of the human race. What we needed was divine intervention. We needed God, if such a being existed, to step in and intervene. Our barrenness was systemic. We have entered the Christmas season where we celebrate what Christians believe to be God's intervention by sending His Son, who was to become the King of the earth and usher in peace on earth and goodwill toward men. At least that's what the angels told the poor shepherds outside Bethlehem. But before that story of intervention is the story of faithful Zechariah and Elizabeth, 
old and barren until God intervened. In Luke 1 verses 10, the people were outside the temple praying while the priests were offering incense in the holy place. Zechariah happened to be the priest that was offering incense that day when an angel appeared to him in verse 11. The angel said to him, Don't be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. But Zechariah's response was like many of ours. It was skeptical, impossible, I am too old. It was disbelief. This is not the way the world works. Old people don't have babies. This is impossible. Like Longfellow's Christmas poem, Zechariah was claiming, And in deep despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Roman hate, barren wombs, are all part and parcel of a chaotic, unsafe, peaceless world. Zechariah's reality was not what the angel was saying. But that wasn't Elizabeth's response. Notice Luke chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. It's interesting that the Levite couple did what Moses' Levitical parents did. They kept it hidden for a period of months. She's saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. She met the promise of the angel with belief. She saw her reproach as removed and by extension the reproaches that have fallen on all of us. She was declaring her purpose fulfilled. She is now contributing to the long-awaited deliverance of the children of men from the grip and deception of the serpent. Once the child was born, Zechariah did believe. And when he did, words began to flow out of him. Notice his words in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. Zechariah declares that God has saved us from slavery, as he has all of us. He has raised up a man of strength from the house of David, which he did through Jesus. He showed mercy to our foreparents by fulfilling the oaths that he made to Abraham. He overcame our sins, the sins that we have perpetrated against each other. He provided light to guide our feet and to show us the path of peace so that we could serve God without fear. It is true that these are ancient stories. But can you feel the factfulness emanating from them? Do you see yourself skeptical like Zechariah or believing like Elizabeth? Have you ever felt like this couple, worthless, reproached, ineffective to solve the world's problems? Have your enemies stifled your voice like it stifled Zechariah's? Enemies and enemy conditions can cause us to feel inadequate. Insecurity and inadequacies, no matter the source, can shut us down and prevent us from being agents of change in the world. How should we then live? This week. It's not, we don't have to boil the ocean. This week. Every time you hear the voice of reproach or inadequacy or past disbelief or current facts to bad conditions, pray to God for His intervention. Let him speak fear not into your life. Let him fill you with his presence. 
Let him give you words that refactor your mind to notice what is true, that the world is a better place, that we are going in the right direction, that we can contribute, no matter our past or present condition, to the well-being of the world. As I stated in episode four, times of suffering and hardship can prove to be the greatest periods of growth in our lives. Individually, we do not live in the condition of our ancient parents. Globally, however, these conditions do exist. And I made light earlier of some of the first world pressures that we might experience. But I am not minimizing the deep psychological and social pressures that seem to be on all of us. Look at the unprecedented rise of suicide in our nation this last year and across the world. Let us continue to put our minds and spirits in prayers to solving the problems that have plagued us with a confidence that if we will be faithful to the spirit of peace on earth, if we will set our minds, our renewed, refactored minds to meet the needs of others, when necessary, God will raise up the right person, the right scientist, the right theologian, the right church, the right synagogue to help solve our complex problems. It's part of the plan of God. According to the stories of our ancient parents, they looked for times when men and women would rise up and do the right things and sacrifice for one another. They looked for a time when a king would be raised up that would not use his kingly power to subdue his enemies that he would do it through sacrificial love. We can reduce suffering, poverty, and infant mortality. We can solve the problems of this planet. We're already seeing it happen. I want to close with the last line of Longfellow's poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so it is, and so it will be. God help us all. Thank you for listening. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and you could have chosen any. But I am sincerely appreciative that you've invested your time into mine. The show notes for this and all episodes and other links to source material can be found on my website at rob-massey.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate it, and share it with a friend. I am working on a mailbag episode, so if you have any questions, please email me at rob at planetjesus.net. Thanks again.